0: Chapter Two Part One of Partial Portraits by Henry James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Rita Boutros. Chapter Two The Life of George Eliot. Part One The writer of these pages has observed that the first question usually asked in relation to Mr. Cross's long-expected biography, is whether the reader has not been disappointed in it. The inquirer is apt to be disappointed if the question be answered in the negative. It may as well be said, therefore, at the threshold of the following remarks, that such is not the feeling with which this particular reader laid down the book. The general feeling about it will depend very much on what has been looked for, there was probably in advance a considerable belief that we were to be treated to revelations i know not exactly why it should have been but certain it is that the announcement of a biography of george eliot has been construed more or less as a promise that we were to be admitted behind the scenes as it were of her life no such result has taken place we look at the drama from the point of view usually allotted to the public and the curtain is lowered whenever it suits the biographer the most intimate pages in the book are those in which the great novelist notes her derangements of health and depression of spirits this history to my sense is quite as interesting as it might have been That is, it is of the deepest interest, and one misses nothing that is characteristic or essential, except perhaps a few more examples of the viscomica, which made half the fortune of Adam Bede and Silas Marner. There is little that is absent that it would have been in Mr. Cross's power to give us. George Eliot's letters and journals are only a partial expression of her spirit but they are evidently as full an expression as it was capable of giving itself when she was not wound up to the epic pitch they do not explain her novels they reflect in a singularly limited degree the process of growth of these great works But it must be added that even a superficial acquaintance with the author was sufficient to assure one that her rich and complicated mind did not overflow in idle confidences. It was benignant and receptive in the highest degree, and nothing could have been more gracious than the manner of its intercourse, but it was deeply reserved and very far from egotistical and nothing could have been less easy or agreeable to it i surmise than to attempt to tell people how for instance the plot of romola got itself constructed or the character of grand court got itself observed there are critics who refuse to the delineator of this gentleman the title of a genius who say that she had only a great talent overloaded with a great store of knowledge The label, the epithet, matters little, but it is certain that George Eliot had this characteristic of the mind possessed, that the creations which brought her renown were of the incalculable kind, shaped themselves in mystery, in some intellectual backshop or secret crucible, and were as little as possible implied in the aspect of her life there is nothing more singular or striking in mr cross's volumes than the absence of any indication up to the time the scenes from clerical life were published that miss evans was a likely person to have written them unless it be the absence of any indication after they were published that the deeply studious concentrated home-keeping mrs lewes was a likely person to have produced their successors I know very well that there is no such thing in general as the air of the novelist, which it behooves those who practice this art to put on, so that they may be recognized in public places. But there is such a thing as the air of the sage, the scholar, the philosopher, the votary of abstractions, and of the lore of the ages, and in this pale but rich life that is the face that is presented." The plan on which it is composed is, so far as I know, without precedent, but it is a plan that could have occurred only to an outsider in literature, if I may venture to apply this term to one who has executed a literary task with such tact and success. The regular littérateur, hampered by tradition, would, I think, have lacked the boldness, the artless artfulness, of conjoining in the same text selected morsels of letters and journals so as to form a continuous and multifarious talk on the writer's part, punctuated only by marginal names and dates, and divisions into chapters. There is something a little violent in the system, in spite of our feeling that it has been applied with a supple hand, but it was probably the best that Mr. Cross could have adopted." And it served, especially well, his purpose of appearing only as an arranger, or rather of not appearing at all. The modesty, the good taste, the self effacement of the editorial element in the book are, in a word, complete, and the clearness and care of arrangement, the accuracy of reference leave nothing to be desired the form mr cross has chosen or invented becomes in the application highly agreeable and his rule of omission for we have almost always only parts and passages of letters has not prevented his volumes from being as copious as we could wish George Eliot was not a great letter-writer, either in quantity or quality. She had neither the spirit, the leisure, nor the lightness of mind to conjure with the epistolary pen, and after her union with George Henry Lewes, her disposition to play with it was further damped by his quick activity in her service. Letter-writing was part of the trouble he saved her. In this, as in other ways, he interposed between the world and his sensitive companion. The difference is striking between her habits in this respect and those of Madame Georges Sand, whose correspondence has lately been collected into six closely printed volumes, which testify afresh to her extraordinary energy and facility. Madame Sand, however, indefatigable producer as she was, was not a woman of study. She lived from day to day, from hand to mouth intellectually, as it were, and had no general plan of life and culture. Her English compere took the problem of production more seriously. She distilled her very substance into the things she gave the world— There was, therefore, so much the less of it left for casual utterance. It was not till Marian Evans was past thirty, indeed, that she became an author by profession, and it may accordingly be supposed that her early letters are those which take us most into her confidence. This is true of those written when she was on the threshold of womanhood, which form a very full expression of her feelings at the time. The drawback here is that the feelings themselves are rather wanting in interest, one may almost say in amiability. At the age of twenty, Marian Evans was a deeply religious young woman, whose faith took the form of a narrow evangelicism. Religious in a manner, she remained to the end of her life, in spite of her adoption of a scientific explanation of things but in the year 1839 she thought it ungodly to go to concerts and to read novels. She writes to her former governess that she can only sigh when she hears of the marrying and giving in marriage that is constantly transacted, expresses enjoyment of Hannah Moore's letters. The contemplation of so blessed a character as hers is very salutary wishes that she might be more useful in her own obscure and lowly station. I feel myself to be a mere cumberer of the ground, that she might seek to be sanctified wholly. These first fragments of her correspondence, first glimpses of her mind, are very curious. They have nothing in common with the later ones, but the deep seriousness of the tone." Serious, of course, George Eliot continued to be to the end. The sense of moral responsibility, of the sadness and difficulty of life, was the most inveterate part of her nature. But the provincial strain in the letters from which I have quoted is very marked. They reflect a meagerness and grayness of outward circumstance, have a tinge as of descent in a small English town where there are brick chapels in back streets. This was only a moment in her development, but there was something touching in the contrast between such a state of mind and that of the woman before whom, at middle age, all the culture of the world unrolled itself, and towards whom fame and fortune, and an activity which at the earlier period she would have thought very profane, pressed with rapidity. In 1839, as I have said, she thought very meanly of the art in which she was to attain such distinction. I venture to believe that the same causes which exist in my own breast to render novels and romances pernicious have their counterpart in every fellow-creature. The weapons of Christian warfare were never sharpened at the forge of romance the style of these pietistic utterances is singularly strenuous and hard the light and familiar are absent from them and i think it is not too much to say that they show scarcely a single premonitory ray of the genius which had silas marner in reserve this dryness was only a phase, indeed, it was speedily dispelled by more abundant showers of emotion, by the overflow of perception. Premonitory rays are still absent, however, after her first asceticism passes away, a change apparently coincident with her removal from the country to the pleasant old town of Coventry where all american pilgrims to midland shrines go and murmur tennyson on the bridge after the evangelical note began to fade it was still the desire for faith a faith which could reconcile human affection with some of the unamiable truths of science Still, the religious idea that colored her thought, not the love of human life as a spectacle, nor the desire to spread the wings of the artist. It must be remembered, though, that during these years, if she was not stimulating prophecy in any definite form, she was inhaling those impressions which were to make her first books so full of the delightful Midland quality the air of old-fashioned provincialism the first piece of literary work she attempted and she brought it to the best conclusion was a translation of strauss's life of jesus which she began in eighteen forty four when she was not yet twenty-five years of age a task which indicates not only the persistence of her religious preoccupations as well as the higher form they took but the fact that with the limited facilities afforded by her life at that time she had mastered one of the most difficult of foreign languages and the vocabulary of a german exegetist in eighteen forty one she thought it wrong to encourage novels but in eighteen forty seven she confesses to reading george sand with great delight There is no exhibition in Mr. Cross's pages of the steps by which she passed over to a position of tolerant skepticism. But the details of the process are, after all, of minor importance. The essential fact is that the change was predetermined by the nature of her mind. The great event of her life was, of course, her acquaintance with George Henry Lewes i say of course because this relation had an importance even more controlling than the publication and success of her first attempt at fiction inasmuch as it was in consequence of mr lew's friendly urgency that she wrote the scenes of clerical life she met him for the first time in london in the autumn of eighteen fifty one but it was not till the summer of eighteen fifty four that the connection with him began it was marked to the world by their going to spend together several months in germany where he was bent on researches for his life of goethe which was to become so much closer than many formal marriages and to last till his death in eighteen seventy eight The episode of Miss Evans' life in London during these three years was already tolerably well known. She had become by this time a professional literary woman, and had regular work as assistant editor of the Westminster Review, to which she gave her most conscientious attention. Her accomplishments now were wide. She was a linguist, a copious reader, an earnest student of history and philosophy. She wrote much for her magazine, as well as solicited articles from others, and several of her contributions are contained in the volume of essays published after her death, essays of which it is fair to say that they give but a faint intimation of her latent powers. George Henry Lewes was a versatile, hard-working journalist, with a tendency apparently of the drifting sort and after having been made acquainted with each other by mr herbert spencer the pair commingled their sympathies and their efforts her letters at this season contain constant mention of Lewes. one allusion to the effect that he has quite won my regard after having had a good deal of my vituperation she takes an interest in his health and corrects his proofs for him when he is absent it was impossible for Mr. Lewes to marry, as he had a wife living from whom he was separated. He had also three children, of whom the care did not devolve upon their mother. The union Miss Evans formed with him was a deliberate step, of which she accepted all the consequences. These consequences were excellent so far as the world is at liberty to judge, save in an important particular This particular is the fact that her false position, as we may call it, produced upon George Eliot's life a certain effect of sequestration, which was not favourable to social freedom or to freedom of observation, and which excited on the part of her companion a protecting, sheltering, fostering, precautionary attitude, the assumption that they lived in special, in abnormal conditions it would be too much to say that george eliot had not the courage of the situation she had embraced but she had at least not the levity the indifference she was unable in the premises to be sufficiently superficial her deep, strenuous, much-considering mind, of which the leading mark is the capacity for a sort of luminous brooding, fed upon the idea of her irregularity with an intensity which doubtless only her magnificent intellectual activity and lose brilliancy and ingenuity kept from being morbid. The fault of most of her work is the absence of spontaneity, the excess of reflection, and by her action in 1854, which seemed superficially to be of the sort usually termed reckless, she committed herself to being nothing if not reflective, to cultivating a kind of compensatory earnestness, Her earnestness, her educated conscience, her exalted sense of responsibility, were colored by her peculiar position. They committed her to a plan of life, of study, in which the accidental, the unexpected, were too little allowed for. And this is what I mean by speaking of her sequestration. If her relations with the world had been easier, in a word, her books would have been less difficult. Mr. Cross, very justly, merely touches upon this question of her forming a tie which was deprived of the sanction of the law, but he gives a portion of a letter written to Mrs. Bray more than a year after it had begun, which sufficiently indicates the serenity of her resolution." Repentance, of course, she never had. The success of her experiment was too rare and complete for that. And I do not mean that her attitude was ever for a moment apologetic. On the contrary, it was only too superabundantly confirmatory. Her effort was to pitch her life ever in the key of the superior wisdom that made her say to Mrs. Bray, in the letter of september eighteen fifty five that any unworldly unsuperstitious person who is sufficiently acquainted with the realities of life can pronounce my relation to mr lewes immoral i can only understand when i remember how subtle and complex are the influences that mould opinion I need not attempt to project the light of criticism on this particular case of conscience. There remains ever, in the mutual relations of intelligent men and women, an element which is for themselves alone to consider. One reflection, however, forces itself upon the mind. If the connection had not taken place, we should have lost the spectacle and influence of one of the most successful partnerships presented to us in the history of human affection there has been much talk about george eliot's example which is not to be deprecated so long as it is remembered that in speaking of the example of a woman of this value we can only mean example for good Exemplary, indeed, in her long connection with George Henry Lewes were the qualities on which beneficent intimacy rests. She was thirty-seven years old when the Scenes from Clerical Life were published, but this work opened wide for her the door of success, and fame and fortune came to her rapidly. Her union with Lewes had been a union of poverty— There is a sentence in her journal of the year 1856 which speaks of their ascending certain cliffs called the Tors at Ilfracombe only twice, for a tax of three denarius per head, was demanded for this luxury, and we could not afford a sixpenny walk very frequently. The incentive to writing Amos Barton seems to have been mainly pecuniary. There was an urgent need to make money, and it appears to have been agreed between the pair that there was at least no harm in the lady's trying her hand at a story. Luz professed a belief that she would really do something in this line, while she, more sceptical, reserved her judgment till after the test. The scenes from Clerical Life were therefore preeminently an empirical work of fiction. With the sending of the first episode to the late Mr. John Blackwood for approval, there opened a relation between publisher and author which lasted to the end, and which was probably more genial and unclouded than any in the annals of literature, as almost unprecedentedly lucrative to both parties this first book of george eliot's has little of the usual air of a first book none of the crudity of an early attempt it was not the work of a youthful person and one sees that the material had been long in her mind the ripeness the pathos a sort of considered quality are as striking to-day as when amos barton and janet's repentance were published and enable us to understand that people should have asked themselves with surprise at that time who it was in the midst of them that had been taking notes so long and so wisely without giving a sign. Adam Bede, written rapidly, appeared in 1859, and George Eliot found herself a consummate novelist without having suspected it. The book was an immense, a brilliant success, and from this moment the author's life took its definite and final direction. She accepted the great obligations which, to her mind, belonged to a person who had the ear of the public, and her whole effort thenceforth was highly to respond to them, to respond to them by teaching, by vivid moral illustration, and even by direct exhortation. It is striking that from the first her conception of the novelist's task is never in the least as the game of art. The most interesting passage in Mr. Cross's volumes is, to my sense, a simple sentence in a short entry in her journal in the year 1859, just after she had finished the first volume of The Mill on the Floss, the original title of which, by the way, had been Sister Maggie. We have just finished reading aloud Père Goriot, A Hateful Book. That Balzac's masterpiece should have elicited from her only this remark, at a time, too, when her mind might have been opened to it by her own activity of composition, is significant of so many things that the few words are, in the whole life, those I should have been most sorry to lose.' of course they are not all george eliot would have had to say about balzac if some other occasion than a simple jotting in a diary had presented itself still what even a jotting may not have said after a first perusal of le pere goriot is eloquent it illuminates the author's general attitude with regard to the novel, which, for her, was not primarily a picture of life capable of deriving a high value from its form, but a moralized fable, the last word of a philosophy endeavouring to teach by example. End of chapter 2, part 1. George Eliot